My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Good morning. It's Pastor Lane speaking from Calkins Baptist Church, and today on our series on the methods of Christ, we are going to seek to follow Jesus of Nazareth and again see what he does in a very difficult situation. We've come to the night of Christ's arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now Jesus has been led away by the authorities who have come to arrest him. And the first stop for Christ is to stand before one of the most powerful leaders in Israel in that day, a man by the name of Annas. Now, Annas himself had been the high priest of Israel, which is the nation's uh, most important religious office for about 10 years, from AD 6 to 15. In AD 15, Pontius Pilate's predecessor, a man by the name of Valerius Gratus, removed Annas from being high priest. But Annas seems to have had the sympathy of the people because the Israelites really did not appreciate when the Romans picked their religious leaders. And so Annas seems to have been still in popular mind the man who was rightfully the high priest. Dr. John MacArthur wrote that no less than five of Annas's sons would also become high priests in Israel. And further, Annas's son-in-law Caiaphas was now serving as the current high priest during this moment in Jesus' life, since it would probably take some time to get the Sanhedrin, like the Israeli Senate, consisting of 70 members, assembled for the official trial of Jesus of Nazareth. Now that he had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was taken to this powerful former high priest's house for his first interrogation or trial. And so if you want to follow along in the scripture, you'll find our text in John chapter 18, verses 12 to 24, as we talk about Jesus' first trial after his rest. And before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we ask for help as we look into your word today. We look at our Savior at a very difficult moment of his life as his passion has just begun. We ask that you will teach us much, not only about him, but about ourselves. And may we appreciate the gift of your son, the the wonderful example he is on so many fronts. And so we pray for your help and guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever come up against a situation where you did or said something that you knew was wrong, and yet you felt justified in doing so? Well, if there was ever a person that was could have made that excuse, it would be Jesus of Nazareth and what he was about to face. We've just last week talked about him being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now let's begin to follow him to the first destination where he'll be taken, and that is to a very beautiful house, really more like a palace, of the high priest who who was actually not the current high priest, but the guy really running the show behind the scenes. His name is Annas, and we're in John chapter 18. I'm starting at verse 12. And we're looking at Jesus' first destination. It says that in verse 12, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So we see Jesus arrested and bound. I don't believe he's beaten or abused at all at this point. I would not have done it if, if I was in the sandals of these people who had come to arrest him. Uh, because if just a few moments earlier when they came up and said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus 
said, I am. If you remember, they fell backward. They were really powerless against him at that moment. Uh, further, they're very possibly going to be concerned about some kind of a armed resistance that might develop because the disciples have scattered, and who knows what they were trying to get up to resist Jesus' arrest. So it's very likely that these men just simply bound Christ and led him back to the house of Annas, again, a former priest, high priest of Israel, really a man that's running a lot of the show behind the scenes. As a matter of fact, a guy that I guess if you were the common Jew of the day, you might have considered him more of the high priest than his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But Jesus then is led to meet this powerful man. And Caiaphas, his son-in-law, the, the acting high priest, has already said that Jesus should die. And so that has to enter into this whole situation as uh, John chapter 18, verse 14, the verse right in front of where we're at, says that Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people, meaning Jesus. So we see in verse 15 and 16 that Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now, who that other disciple is, my best opinion is that it's the author of the book, the Apostle John. He'll give details about Jesus' trial that no one else gives in the scriptures, so it's very possible it's him. If not, then it would have been one of the other disciples who informed John, but John often refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never comes out and says, it's me, John. Um, eventually, at the end of this book, he'll say he, about the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's me as I'm the author, but but he never really names himself as John. So my personal opinion is that this is another reference that John is making to himself as calling him another disciple. And so Peter, and, and again, I think John, and I'll refer to him as John throughout the rest of our study just to make it a little easier for you to follow. So Peter and John follow Jesus to this meeting with Annas, and, and so... It's in a courtyard. There's a beautiful palace that Annas is living in. And there's a, a girl in charge at the gate of this palace, and she's only letting in people who are approved to be inside. And think about it. The arrest of Jesus of Nazareth has begun to spread throughout the city of Jerusalem, not so much among the common people, although that may be happening through the disciples and their friends. But as far as the leaders, the Sanhedrin has to assemble to give Christ an official trial before his countrymen. And so while that news is going out and people, these like Sanhedrin members, you can almost think of them as U.S. senators, that kind of a, of a powerful position. As these men are trying to get ready and hurriedly uh, coming to this trial, what are you, you going to do with Jesus of Nazareth at that point? And so it seems likely to me that both of these trials, the one that we would call almost like an interview with Jesus and the first man, Annas, so the former high priest, and then the official trial before the Sanhedrin happened in this same palace complex. And so that's why Peter is in there for both of those trials, probably took several hours for everything to play out, because by the time that Peter denies Christ for the third time, you'll recall that the cock is crowing, which is kind of welcoming the new day. Um, thus, Peter could have easily been in this spot both during both of Jesus' Jewish trials, and uh, Luke tells us that this was the house of the high priest. But again, it would depend on 
common Jewish person would think that Annas is really supposed to be the high priest. So my opinion is that although Caiaphas may have also had access to this house as a son-in-law, that this was mainly the dwelling place of Annas. And I wondered then whose house it was. And so I did some study this past week while studying for this message, and I became aware of a renowned archaeological architect named Lean Rittmeyer. And that last name, if you want to look him up, R-I-T-M-E-Y-E-R, Lean Rittmeyer. And what he discovered, he started to form a team to look at an excavation site back in the 1970s. And he, he excavated a large building near the Temple Mount that is now called Palatial Mansion or Herodian Mansion. And it is believed to be the residence of Annas, the high priest, the man that Jesus was standing before in John chapter 18 that we'll be looking at. Now, this house had a footprint of 6,500 square feet. Since it had two stores, you can almost double that. That's a, a house living space approaching to 13,000 square feet. According to the article I was reading, and I'm going to quote now, no other private rev residence of this size has been excavated anywhere in Israel. Now think about it. This is the largest private house that they have discovered to this point. And I'll share more information about Annas himself later. But then it seems very likely that Jesus was taken to Annas's palatial palace for his first interrogation. And of course, there in a different room possibly is where the Sanhedrin will assemble and he'll have his official trial before them after Annas is done interviewing him. Now, John, the uh, again, that's who I believe the other disciple is, is known by the high priest. Let me read it again. It says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, and that seems to me to be John, and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So he is not at major risk because he's a relative of the high priest of getting in to see this trial. And so John takes advantage of that. And he is now actually able to see what goes on, and that's why I think he's writing about it in his gospel. Verse 16, but Peter stood out at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So get the picture. John gets in where the high priest is, is going to have this trial. This would be, again, Annas, the, the former high priest, but the kind of the guy behind the scenes. And so John gets sees Peter outside, and so he goes out to the courtyard and speaks to the girl who's watching over the gate and asks her to let Peter in. Now, that brings us to what I call Satan going after Peter in the courtyard. Because if you remember, Jesus had warned Peter the just earlier in the same evening when they're in the upper room that Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. He's asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And so Jesus had warned Peter that this, he was up against a, a great spiritual attack. And this is really where it takes place over a few hour period when Peter is led into the courtyard. So what we find is as he's now entering, I'm coming to verse 17, which says, Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? But what a question. 
Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Think about the fact that Peter does not anticipate this kind of attack from the devil. But that's really what's going on here. And it starts with a young girl's question. Now, this is a servant girl assigned, at, again, at the courtyard gate, who asked Peter a simple question. You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, notice, first of all, the gender of the person asking. Peter had just shown himself willing, against all odds, to take on a small army of men to defend Jesus. He was willing to die fighting for Jesus, yet Christ had told him to put his sword away, and Peter obeyed. Jesus, Jesus further stated that he could have called 12 legions of angels if he wanted to, who could fight for him, but that he would take the cup his father had given him to drink. So with no fighting to be done, Peter left Jesus to the soldiers in the garden and ran. Peter was willing to go down swinging with Jesus, but he was not willing to meekly surrender and go along Jesus' side at that point. And again, I think how many of us would have been willing to do that at that moment. However, it seems that Peter tried to tell himself that he was not going to leave Jesus, but look for an opening to help him in some way. So he probably was glad to be able to get into the courtyard near Christ's trial. May not have even had a definite plan at this point, but I don't think he ever foresaw that this young girl would ask him if he were a follower of Jesus. So just think about it. Here's just a girl, not an army of men that he can fight, but just a girl asking him this question. You're not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, second thing I want you to think about it is the position of the person asking. She's got no real power. She's a mere servant girl. So she can't have him arrested or ordered anything like that. Now, again, she may suggest to the soldiers they're in the courtyard there. But also notice how she asked the question. It's what we would call a, a leading question. You are not one of this man's disciples, are you? She probably didn't think about it, but Satan is behind this. So there's a suggested answer here. You, you're not so dumb as to be one of this man's disciples, are you? This also is an inconvenient question because Peter's trying to remain anonymous. He's trying to be near Jesus, but maybe he can help in some way. Yet, if he is known to be a disciple of Christ, this would result in probably at least getting kicked out or watched closely. So this is also, for Peter, a dangerous question because the soldiers who arrested Jesus are there. Remember that Peter cut off a guy's ear in the garden, so what might they do to him if they found out who he was and maybe he still even has his knife on him? So Peter makes a sinful choice under great pressure. He simply says, I am not. Now, at that point, then, Peter denied his Lord, didn't he? Jesus warned Peter that he would deny even knowing Christ three times before daybreak. That's in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 to 34. And so this is the first time that Peter does it. And if you're like me, I know that there are times when one sin leads to another, where it's almost like a snowball going downhill. You make one bad choice, and that can then snowball into another one and into another one. And, and before you know it, you're, you're doing something that you never would have done normally. Well, that's what's going on with Peter right now. And, and there's something else that is mentioned in the next verse. Listen to what it says. I'm in verse 18 now. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So now the time period, you think about when we have 
our Easter Resurrection Day observances, they vary with the Passover. And the Jewish Passover goes by the cycle of the moon. So it can go anywhere from, say, mid to late March to like um, mid to late, uh, mid to early April. And so it's in that time period somewhere where it can be pretty cold, even over there in Jerusalem. And so Peter would like to remain anonymous, but he's going to get colder. He's going to be there for quite a while. And you can understand why then out of just desiring not to be freezing, he heads over to the fire where Many people are gathered, and many of them are the very people who arrested Christ just a little while earlier. So we have what I would call a dangerous association. Psalm 1-1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And so at this point, Peter is at the fire, with a number of enemies of Christ, and it's a dangerous situation that he's in. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, Solomon said this, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it, do not travel on it, turn from it, and pass on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33 the Apostle Paul wrote this under inspiration, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And so Peter is in a rougher spot than he may have thought about when he went to that fire, and that is he's hanging with a bunch of people who are enemies of Christ, and he's still trying to remain unknown. But again, he's drawn by his body just getting cold to the fire where the very men who were involved in Christ's arrest are gathered. And so... You can understand him being weakened spiritually. He just lied and denied Christ. Now, if you're Peter, what might you be thinking? Well, would you confess your lie at that point? Say, Lord, I was wrong. I was wrong to deny that I knew Jesus. Would you maybe excuse your lie? Well, I need to do that because I might have a chance to help Jesus. Maybe he'll be going from one spot to another, and maybe I can jump one of the guards. Maybe he still has his knife in his hand. Maybe I can do something to get him free. Um, or I can inform the other disciples as to what's going on so we can formulate a plan. So would you have an excuse for your lie, or would you even be battling both guilt and fear, guilt over lying, fear over what might happen to Jesus, fear over what might happen to yourself? So I would say he's in a weakened spot spiritually, and he's basically surrounded by Christ's enemies here. Now, we're going to leave Peter for the rest of our sermon as far as uh, talking about him, because John now jumps into the actual trial of Annas. And Peter will be talked about again where he goes from here in a future message. But in verse 19, we now come back to Jesus' trial before, before Annas. And Annas is going to question Jesus in a couple different areas. So verse 19, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. So, why does he want to know about Jesus' disciples? Well, since John or whoever that other disciple is that's in that room probably was able to view this trial, knowing that the Jewish leadership was interested in Jesus' followers might be the reason for John's later comment in his book 
on why the disciples were gathered together on the first Sunday night after Jesus' resurrection. Here's what he says, chapter 20 of his book, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, the same day, by the way, of Christ's resurrection, being the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. So this may very well be why those disciples were so fearful for their own safety, because the guy who is the head honcho, not the official high priest, but the real uh, kind of the neck that turns the head, the uh, Annas, was asking Jesus specifically about his disciples. He wanted to know something else. He wanted to know about Jesus' doctrine of his teaching. Now, why might Annas be asking questions about Jesus' teaching? Well, it seems likely to me that he was looking for something that all the leadership could could agree was a blasphemous statement or a blasphemous belief and thus be able to condemn Christ to death. Unfortunately, it's clear that Annas did not, as Nicodemus did, ask Jesus questions to learn anything from him. If you remember back in John chapter 3, there was another religious leader. And by the way, he also was one of the members of the Sanhedrin, the very, very fact that it seems highly likely that uh, Nicodemus had, was in that meeting, which was going to take place shortly of the Sanhedrin, and he and Joseph of Arimathea did not agree with that decision, but were evidently shouted down and voted down, um, despite their desire to not have Jesus condemned to die. But be that as it may, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he's got real questions. You know, he's saying, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these miracles that you're doing unless God is with him. And so he had some real questions. Jesus talked to him in depth about what it meant to be born again. That's where we get the term, where Jesus said to Nicodemus, Verily I say unto you, or truly I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus had quite a discussion with him that I believe resulted in Nicodemus's salvation. But unfortunately, when this man, Annas, is asking Jesus about his doctrine, it is obvious that he has no interest in learning anything from Jesus like Nicodemus did. This longtime religious leader and sadly religious hypocrite was trying to entrap Jesus, not be taught by him. And so as a result, Jesus had to make a very wise answer. Now, again, if you're standing in front of a guy that you know is a, is a hypocrite, and I'll explain a little bit more in a moment why I say he was such a hypocrite, and this guy is going to judge you, and he's far more wicked uh, than anything you are, and think, we're not just talking about you or I standing for this hypocrite. We're talking about the Son of God, the sinless Son of God who is now standing in front of this guy who is thinking for all the world like he has every right to judge Jesus and work toward his execution. How would you or I respond to a guy like that? Well, Jesus says this to him. Verse 20 and 21, Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Now, why is this a wise answer? What can we learn from Jesus' answer here? First of all, he's telling at, right up from the front, I have no secret agenda. 
That means he's not trying to work behind the scenes to overthrow the governmental leadership, whether they be Jewish or Roman. He'd openly taught without a secret agenda. So that in itself should have brought some encouragement to these men that he's not looking to overthrow the religious leadership as far as him replacing them. That wasn't his agenda at all. He says, I have no secret agenda. But number two, Jesus was not going to discuss his doctrines. Isn't that interesting? And as he, he told them, you can gain knowledge of my teachings from those who heard me. Now, does that shock you at least somewhat? Would you not expect Jesus maybe to try to convert Annas? I found the following note concerning this man, Annas, in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It's a scholarly source, and here's what they say about him. He, Annas, belonged to the Sanhedrin aristocracy, and like others of that class, he seems to have been arrogant, astute, ambitious, and enormously wealthy. He and his family were proverbial for their rapacity and greed. The chief source of their wealth seems to have been the sale of requisites for the temple sacrifices such as sheep, doves, wine, and oil, which they carried on in four famous, quote now, booths of the sons of Annas, end of quote, on the Mount of Olives with a branch within the precincts of the temple itself. During great feasts, they were able to extort high monopoly prices for theft goods. Now, think about this. So, they were the ones who were charging everybody for their sacrifices, you know, you, and, and exchanging the money and all that kind of thing. That's the idea. Annas was behind all of that. I'm going on reading from the um, International Bible Encyclopedia. Hence, our Lord's strong denunciation of those who made the house of prayer a den of robbers, Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, and the curse, listen to this curse in the Talmud. Now, this the Talmud is a rabbinic Jewish source. These are not uh, Christian scholars. Here's their statement about Annas in the Talmud. Woe to the family of Annas. Woe to the serpent-like hisses. Isn't that amazing? If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. So, even among the Jewish scholarship after his death, this man's name was Mud. He was known as a hypocrite. And so, let me take you, you say Jesus wouldn't even talk to this guy about his doctrine. Well, let me take you to another unusual example of the same type of reaction by Christ. It's in Luke chapter 23 and verses 6 through 11. And this would actually happen just a few hours after what will is going on at this moment where we're studying. And so in a future week, we'll, we'll get to this. This is when uh, Jesus was sent to a guy by the name of Herod Agrippa. Okay, it's in Luke 23, and I'm starting at verse 6. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. This is when Jesus first was standing before Pontius Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to rule on this case. And as soon as he knew that that he, Jesus, belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, this is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus as an infant, as a young boy. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, 
But he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say a word to this man, Herod Antipas? You say, well, why wouldn't he do that? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, we can choose to depart from God's convicting truth, resulting in our hearts being both hardened and deceived. Here's what those verses say. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the de deceitfulness of sin. What we find in Luke 23 and verse 8, we see the sad reality of Herod's hardened and deceived heart. He greatly decide, desired to see Jesus of Nazareth, but not again to learn anything from him. But he actually wanted to see Jesus for the purpose of entertainment, that he might see a miracle, something that would make him go, wow, isn't that amazing? Jesus had nothing to say to either Annas or Herod Antipas. Why? Well, you notice a statement that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6, which says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, there are two important truths to consider from that statement in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. The first one is that some people cannot be trusted with the truth. All they will do is either fail to value it like a, a pig looking at a pearl. What does a pig want? Well, he cares nothing about a pearl since he can't eat it. And of course, the second problem is the pig is at risk if he's hungry to do violence to you because he doesn't care about the pearl. He's, not, he's still hungry and he may attack you. He may turn again and rend you. And so there's certain people, unfortunately, that can't be trusted with the truth, and both Herod, Antipas, and this man, Annas, are in that category. That's why Jesus isn't speaking to them. But secondly, I want you to think about this, that one of the worst things that can happen to you is for God to stop speaking to you. And why would he do that? Because since eternal life is wrapped up in knowing God, if he's stopping to speak to you, that can very well mean that you're doomed to eternal destruction as a lost person because of your rejection of God's truth that he's already shared with you on multiple occasions. That's what happened with Herod Antipas. He had been a, a man that listened to John the Baptist preaching, and he liked what he heard. He Even the Bible tells us that he even started to try to do some of the things that John was saying. But Herod after listening to John and maybe considering his message, decided to take his brother's wife. He evidently fell in love with um, Herodias, may have been a beautiful woman, I do not know. But he decides to take her from his brother's wife. And John the Baptist, he, he spoke out against that, told Herod he was wrong for it. And eventually, Herod has John arrested, and ultimately, John is put to death by Herod's hand. And so what has happened to Herod? He's become deceived and he's become hardened because of his wicked choices to turn away from what at one point at least he was believing was right. 
So what do we learn from Christ's answer? Well, first of all, he has no secret agenda, he's telling Annas. Number two, he's not going to discuss his doctrines. And by the way, did you notice what part of Annas's inquiry Jesus did not even mention? Now, remember, Annas was asking Jesus about his disciples and about his doctrine. Let me read again Jesus' answer. I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. You'll notice that Jesus is not only telling him, I don't have a secret agenda, I'm not going to discuss doctrines with you, but he's not giving anything away about his disciples. He's not betraying them. He said nothing about the identity of those men or maybe the other ladies who had followed him. And there were, there were many of them that were in Jerusalem at that time. Now, what results from this answer, this wise answer? Well, we have the first time that Jesus is physically assaulted. It's in verse 22. It says, And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Now, this is a line the line of physical abuse that has now been crossed. And those of you that have gone through a fight, and probably most of us have gone through that, or I hate to even bring up those who may have gone through physical abuse, but there's a line, and when that line is crossed, it becomes easier to cross it again. That's unfortunate, but that's true. And so here this, I want to see a couple things from this. First of all, is the power of Annas over his officers. The Christian Bible, uh, Standard Bible, calls the guy who hit Jesus with the palm of his hand one of the temple police. The officer evidently felt justified in saying, do you answer the high priest like that? And thus his excuse was that he's defending the dignity of the high priest. But I want you to think also about the injustice that is being tolerated here. Now, can you imagine if a police officer in any one of our courts was caught on film slapping a defendant with his palm in the courtroom? If that was caught on tape, it would be rightly made national news. Why? Because we as American citizens expect that the rights of all citizens be respected. You may disagree with me, but the fact that this officer of the high priest felt free enough to smack Jesus in the face in front of the high priest tells us that he was confident that Annas would have no problem with it. And it seems that he was correct. There's no indication in the text that he was rebuked or, or chastised or, or fired or whatever. None of that. This is also, as far as I can discern, the first unjust blow that our Lord would endure, and there would be many, many more. You can recall that in the Garden of Gethsemane, again, when Jesus is arrested, that there was not a lot of, um, uh, there's no, no indication that he was beaten there. And so now we see that line being crossed, whereas people begin to hit Christ, and there's nothing that happens to them, and so they become more emboldened to do so. Now, Jesus actually spoke to the man who just uh, hit him in the face at verse 23. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Now, Jesus speaks to the man that just hit him with a challenge and then with a question. Here's the challenge. If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. Tell me what I said that was wrong. 
It's his question. And it's his, it's his challenge, excuse me. Then his question is, but if I have spoken well, why do you strike me? So Jesus handles this violent act far more wisely than I would have. Can you imagine how you would have reacted had someone just smacked you in the face? And with a palm, that, that can do a lot of damage. My brother took martial arts and uh, was taught how to use his palm as, as a weapon. That could have been a, a vicious blow. And can you imagine how you would have reacted if you said something that was completely appropriate as what Jesus had said was, and then just literally get smacked in the face viciously for it? Well, I'm going to read another account of someone else who went through something similar. And this is in Acts chapter 23, and this is the Apostle Paul. So Acts chapter 23, verse 1 says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, he's been arrested, he's in front of another uh, council of his countrymen, of his fellow Jewish people, and so actually there's a, a, another man who is at least acting as the high priest, who's at this hearing, not the same guy, a number of years later. Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias, different guy, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So you can imagine he that now in this case, the high priest gave the order to hit Paul on the mouth. The guy must have gone over there and gave him a pretty good old blow. Then Paul said to him, Well, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Now, I will just say this. Can you understand why Paul would be so hot about this? It's like, you're going to be a, my judge according to the law, and you're violating the law to, to smash me in the face? I, I completely get his point. But uh, notice what happens next. And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Now, Paul didn't know that he was the high priest. Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So the Apostle Paul reacted in a much different way than Jesus reacted. Jesus shows great self-control and restraint. The Apostle Paul, much more like we would have done, and that is anger and, and not cursing with swear words, but actually pronouncing a curse on this God. God strike you. And so uh, you can just, again, see how how superior Christ is to us and and how easily we could do like Paul and say, well, you know, I was justified in losing my temper because of what was done to me. Whereas, again, we see the example of Christ just looking at the guy who just smashed him in the face and really challenging him. If I've said something evil, tell me what it was. There's the challenge and there's the question. If not, why did you hit me? And so we again we just see how, how how wonderful the Lord is, how He acts so differently than you or I would have acted at that point. Now in verse twenty-four, Annas concludes the interview. Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest, and again probably in the same building uh, is is now where the next trial is going to take place. So he does not release Jesus obviously to freedom. Pa instead, he passes him on for the official trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, which we will get to in a future week. Now, what do we conclude when we look at this account? 
Well, when you watch the people and the events that swirl around Jesus during his first, what we call a trial, or you could call it an interview, before a corrupt official named Annas, you can see many contrasts. Let me just give you a few of them. First of all, you see Jesus' courage in contrast to his disciples' fearful actions. And I can identify with those men. I'm not trying to be overly critical to, of them, but we just don't begin to measure up to Christ. And what do I mean? Well, let me give you some comparisons. First of all, you see the disciples scattering in the garden, and yet Jesus courageously surrenders to his Father's will, walks right toward his captors, because that's God's will for him to go to the cross and allows them to arrest him. You also see Peter and John powerless to protect Jesus, and yet Jesus is beaten for protecting them. He doesn't give away their location, doesn't give away their names, and for that, he is smashed in the face. You also see Peter lying to hide his connection with Jesus, yet Jesus is speaking the truth without apology, without fear. He's speaking the truth. You also see a contrast between this godless leader, Annas, and Jesus, the Son of God. Let me give you some of those contrasts. Well, you have Annas living in a beautiful palace. And again, when they excavated that, this is the largest house that they have ever excavated that's privately owned in all of Israel up to this point. Very well may be the largest that was ever built in that, in that generation. So this Annas, this wicked man, is living in a beautiful palace, whereas Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to this earth to save us, and he would tell a man that came to follow him, he said, I don't have a place to lay my head. So Jesus is living without a home. Another contrast, and why is he in such a beautiful palace, this Annas? Well, because he's got his wealth from fleecing God's people. It was him and and his helpers, maybe even his children, that Jesus was talking about when he says, you've made my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. That was Annas' doing. He's got his wealth from fleecing God's people, whereas Jesus became poor to save God's people. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 tells us, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, talking about the blessings of glory in heaven, which we can't even imagine. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Jesus became poor to save God's people. Think of it. Whereas Annas, he's, wealth, he's wealthy from fleecing God's people. Another difference between Annas and Christ, Annas's power and wealth are only temporary. <laughs> His house is a ruined that they were able to uncover. Well, what happened to his house? Well, Josephus says that the many of the houses and palaces and things around Jerusalem were, were burned at the, um, when the Romans came in and conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that's actually what they found at this uh, palatial palace, I think they call it. They found that it had been burnt. And so it wasn't all that long before this beautiful house was a wreck, was a mess. And now we just try to piece it together today. So Annas' 
power and his wealth were only temporary, though they seemed great at the moment. Whereas Jesus' wealth and power are eternal. And by the way, Jesus wants to share his blessings with you. I'm reading out of Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to turn there and read from verse uh, 4 down to verse 7. Listen to what it says. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, that word ages is like the idea of eons, the eons to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Say, Pastor Lane, what's heaven going to be like? I have no idea. I really don't. I mean, there's, there's some things in the word of God, but I'll just tell you, God doesn't begin to share all the blessings of heaven with us. He doesn't begin to. I think if he did, if we had an inkling of what it would be like, we'd all want to die and get there. We really would. But what do we see? Anna says, lived this in this beautiful palace, which is only temporary. And Jesus actually wants to share his power and eternal wealth with his children. Here's another contrast with Jesus and Annas. Annas' name is despised today. Again, there's a curse upon his family in the Talmud. Uh, the, the rabbinical uh, Jewish writings, after this man's death, people really began to see what a wicked man he was. Well, whereas Jesus' name, listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what a blessing is that, that Jesus' name is the greatest of all. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What a blessing. His name is greatest of all. Annas, he's allowing Christ to be violently struck. And how sad is that? And yet, in contrast to that, we see Jesus is controlled despite the violence that is being done to him. And actually, the Apostle Peter, who was in that complex on that evening, will write this to encourage Christians a few years later now about how they can really live under, uh, many times they're slaves, so they're living under masters who are cruel and mean, and Peter is instructing them how to do that. So listen to what he says. I'm starting at verse 18 of, of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, servants or slaves, so he's talking to people who are Christians, but they're still under slavery. Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, 
who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Yes, Jesus laid down his life for you and for me and was not going to react in anger and in a violent way, in any way threatening. You know, there's a song that often is sung around Easter time, and if this is one you like, I'm sorry, but I, I really don't like the tone of it, where the author of the song is trying to act like he's uh, talking about Jesus, and, and Jesus is supposedly saying, go ahead and mock my name. Um, you know, you can do all these things, but, uh, you know, you're going to get it one day, and I'm going to rise again. And that's the name of the song, I'll Rise Again. And the reality is, I think that's a very poor and man-centered and sin-minded idea of what Christ was thinking. He's not threatening. He's not reviling back. Matter of fact, if you remember when he's lifted on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So what are we seeing? We're seeing the Son of God behaving in perfection among evil, violent people. He's not acting like we would act. He's way above our level. By the way, through his Spirit, there are Christians who can rise above their normal way of handling things and drop the excuses of why we have the right to do wrong and actually live through the Spirit's power to overcome what we would normally do and live a righteous life, even under great stress and pressure. Now, I want you to think about that when that pertains to your home. Think about how you, Dad, may behave in front of your children. You may say, well, I was right in, in getting angry and, and saying these mean things to my kids. Well, if you only understand what, he, understand what my son or my daughter has done, then you would you'd agree with, well, I may agree with you that you are right to be angry, but you, but that doesn't give you an excuse to act in an, in an out-of-control manner. It doesn't give you the excuse to say things that were unkind. And our Lord stands as an example of enduring great injustice from, from religious hypocrites, some of the worst people to walk the planet. And yet he did so in a godly way as God in the flesh. And he stands as our example. And you may say as a wife, well, I had a right to be disrespectful to my husband. He was doing the wrong thing and he had done. Well, again, may I say to you that, yes, there, that it, you may be enduring uh, injustice. Maybe your husband has failed you miserably, but that does not give you an excuse to sin back to him. And if we could only get couples to see that, that, you know what, even if the situation, I, I can make up my excuses and I can stand back on my high horse and say, well, I had every right to be mean. I had every right to be unkind. And our Savior's example is standing in front of us and saying, no, you don't. There's a right way to do the right thing. And when injustice is being done to me, it doesn't mean I have to respond in a sinful way. So how do we apply this? Well, First of all, I think we all need to see how far short we follow the character of Christ. Can you feel for the disciples? 
Even some of Christ's closest disciples, like Peter and John, are showing very real battles between fear and self-sacrifice and their love and loyalty for Christ. I mean, they, they want to sacrifice for him, but they really don't want to die at this point. And I get that. I think we can we can identify with where these men are at and the struggle that that is. And so let's not be over-condemning of these disciples, but let's also understand that we have something now that they didn't have at that point, and that is those of us who know Christ as Savior have the permanent indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus would give that to them after his resurrection, but they didn't have it at that point. But we do. We have God's power within us when we know Christ as Savior. If anyone's in Christ now, he's a new creature. That means, and, and the Spirit of God has come in. If, as a matter of fact, Romans chapter 8 tells us, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not one of his. And so we have an ability now as Christians to be able to follow our Savior. And so we, we need to keep that in mind, that, that the excuse, I need to drop the excuses for why I sin. And then secondly, would you and I not have a hard time being civil with that anus, that that wicked, powerful, religious hypocrite who's standing in, in this egotistical and self-appointed judgment over the Son of God. Yet Jesus, though unwilling to engage in doctrinal conversation with the snake in the grass, will still treat Annas with civility and respect. Now, would you struggle with that? I, I, I think I definitely would have. This is why we need a Savior. Because the Bible tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It goes on to say that the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus came and died on that horrible cross because of those very sins that we typically commit, many of which we excuse when we have no right to do so. Because what we see is under the greatest pressure, with the greatest excuses, our Lord did not sin. And he calls us to follow him. May you and I do that. May we turn from our sin, repent, and begin the process of following Jesus, letting him change us. And no, we're not going to be perfect like he was, but we can start picking up our cross and following him. Father, bless these folks. May they think on these things, we pray. Work in the hearts of those that don't know thee. Challenge those that do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like some spiritual help like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send us to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. This is life and light. He frees.